Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. This week, Christy and I take on topics as diverse as the new UK law to prevent fraud, employees working from home, employers listening to employees, uh, articles from the FCPA blog. Uh, of course, Florida Man makes an appearance as well. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grandhart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering whether there is a compliance crisis coming, a brand new compliance law in the UK, whether companies are dialing down their public statements on ESG and DEI, and finally, criminal antics only a Florida man could pull off. But first, Tom, how has your week been, and what do you think is the most interesting development? Wow. Well, we're having between 105 degree weather daily with hail-induced thunderstorms. I got to see Fiona, BB, Tucker, and one other hippo at the Cincinnati Zoo yesterday. Ah. So my wife is extraordinarily happy. And (laughs) so it's been a good week so far. I love that. That's fantastic. Well, going from a good week to, I don't know, a gloom and doom, what do you think about this thing? Why don't you start? Sure. So Harry Harry Casson wrote, I thought, uh, I first read it, it put me off a little bit. I thought, you know, it's provocative. And, and sometimes you should write provocative columns. And in the position Harry's in as the editor of the FCPA blog, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, he should write this article because he raises some really interesting questions. And in the... Um, Basically, he, he says that it's anecdotally at least reported that compliance departments are losing both budget and headcount. And he contrasts that with the uptick in corporate profits and wonders what might be the reason if it really is a trend. And he starts with the enforcement actions over the past few years. And I guess I really hadn't thought about the last, I guess now, three and a half years, but in 2020, he reported FCPA settlements top 6.4 billion. 2021, 282 million. 2022, 1.5 billion. And 2023 today, which is almost six months into the year, 300 million. So significant drop in enforcements. And he asked, has that really uh, taken compliance off of the CEO or senior executives? sort of top of mind, or is this simply really just a market correction after a large increase in hiring over the past couple of years? He doesn't know the answer or he doesn't give the answer. He only raises questions. But as I said, the more I thought about it, I thought it was a a really good article and we need to think about sort of what is going on. And having gone through couple of cycles and upturns and downturns in the energy space. Uh, we're certainly used to that in Texas, but uh, 
compliance may need to start figuring out ways to be more efficient. And hopefully data and data analytics will drive that. But I had really not focused on this issue. So I thought it was good that Harry raised it. And uh, the enforcement action numbers I do find, I don't want to say troubling, but they're trending in a way we haven't seen probably since 07. So that's something I think we're all going to have to watch as well, Christy. I mean, I I thought there was a lot of interesting things in this. So number one, we'll talk later about Lisa Monaco, the DOJ's statement about the new database. But what struck me in that article was that she said, we need to understand if corporate criminal prosecutions are going down, we need to make sure that that's not the case. And I think rather clearly it is the case. And I think that it's being reflected in priorities by the time this airs, I will have done Navex's State of the Compliance Profession review, which is uh, tomorrow from where we're recording. And of the priorities, only 33% of the respondents of 1,300 people said they're going to be training on bribery and corruption this year. And it just shocked the pants off me reading that and thinking, good grief, you know, I think that that is pushed by DOJ and that if we don't have the threat of enforcement actions, it really changes the math. Now, I think obviously Harry is at the FCPA blog, right? The article is called, is there a compliance crisis coming? But I think that maybe that's a bit of a myopic focus compared to what the larger compliance community is dealing with when you add trade sanctions as the new FCPA, as we've repeatedly heard from the department. And we've got privacy concerns, ESG laws coming up. I think it's broader, but I do think from an FCPA perspective, I certainly at this moment wouldn't want to just be an FCPA practitioner because it does feel like it's contracting. But go ahead. Yeah, so absolutely. And I'm glad you tied that into the database article because I was somewhat stunned that she didn't have information at her fingertips. We'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. We will definitely get, stay tuned. Um, but yeah, so I think it's something we all ought to take a look at. And maybe in some of the surveys we get next year, there'll be some real numbers that we can take a look at going forward. Because in an earlier episode, we discussed CCO pay. And I think the numbers showed it was up 6%. So mm-hmm. it was trending in a different direction. But uh, the failure to prevent, uh, tell us about that, because it takes a little bit different angle, the UK law. And what do... U.S. compliance and fraud professionals need to know about this law, Christy. So this is, this is we're going from <laughs> why the sky is falling in the U.S. to why the sky is raising itself and the clouds are parting in the U.K. We have a brand new law, people get excited. We are going to be seeing the failure to prevent fraud offense. So this one copies the popular format in the U.K. of creating a law with strict liability enforcement unless a company has either reasonable procedures or what they're calling here, reasonable fraud prevention procedures in place, right? So this is similar to the structure of the UK Bribery Act and the UK failure to prevent tax evasion schemes. These in theory at least work by finding the company liable, strict liability, if a bribe is paid or if they are involved in tax evasion, unless the company has a good compliance program in place that's meant to stop the activity from happening. Um, This law is going to cover actions taken by employees and third-party agents. Tom, we love a good third-party issue around here, do we not? It's all good. The UK government specifically says it's targeting fraud in order to cut crime and, I'm quoting here, drive a culture change toward improved fraud prevention. So anytime, unquote, we're uh, looking at culture change, that's obviously important for us compliance folks. 
Now, the law is going to be limited in scope to larger entities. So this is very similar to the UK Modern Slavery Act in that it is looking at companies with 250 employees and or more than 36 million in turnover pounds and more than and or more than 18 million pounds in total assets. So it's two out of three and you're caught. Right now, the fines are unlimited. Mm, that's a big number, isn't it? Unlimited. And individuals will not be in scope. And the government responded to criticism of that by saying that individuals committing fraud can already be prosecuted. However, individuals who fail to prevent fraud will not be prosecuted, which, you know, seems kind of fair. The fact sheet that's come out says that the UK government will publish guidance providing organizations with more information about what constitutes those reasonable procedures before the new offense comes into force. And commentators expect this to be in force by the end of 2024. So usually these come with things like requirements for risk assessment, training, making sure that we've got governance and metrics around this, communications, that people understand what's going on. Tom, what do you think about this one? It's, it's very broad, isn't it? It is, but I really like it. The, the import or intent in the title, failure to prevent. And it really puts the burden on senior management to prevent fraud. So um, it's easier for me to see how corruption can benefit an entire company and a board or senior exec should be held responsible for failure to prevent. Fraud is theft of money from the company by an individual or groups of people. And initially I struggled with, if the company's already penalized, you need to penalize the board or senior execs. But the UK has chosen to go down this route. So it seems to me a little bit consistent with what we saw in the UK Bribery Act. But I think it, if, if properly prosecuted, it could put some real weight behind this UK effort to, to really, as they say, change a culture. Yeah, I think it's going to be cool. We always like new enforcement, so we'll go down that road. Uh, next up, we had an interesting survey released from White and & Case and KPMG of Global Trends or Global Compliance. And there were some really interesting trends in this overall report, cybersecurity topped compliance priorities for the next 12 months. The third parties are still one of the biggest risks facing or the biggest risks facing companies, but uh, there seem to be a large uh, number of the companies recognize this. One of the things that troubled me was, or one of the findings I say, I should say, I found troubling was that uh, a really significant amount, 55% of employees reported fear of retaliation as the top reason for not reporting uh, any incidents or other information right up there with concerns for not doing anything, concerns that the report would not be anonymous. So still a, a significant amount of distrust, a low number of companies who are able to uh, have advanced data analytics, and by low, I mean less than 10%, at 9% mm -hmm. of companies reporting. Compliance teams were certainly under pressure to improve their uh, performance around third-party risk, but I found that consistent with the um, recognition of third parties still as the highest risk. Around the area of ESG, what I saw, Christy, was confusion, and confusion around whether compliance officers or other persons responsible in a corporation could define ESG in their organizations. And lots of different uh, ways to think about ESG. So 
companies didn't really seem to have a handle on or getting their arms around how they were going to look at that. The other thing I found was that found interesting was that almost 80% of respondents said they conducted risk assessments, but only 47% conducted them on a yearly or annual basis. If we think about what the Department of Justice told us back in 2020 with the update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, you should do a risk assessment when your risks change and really no less than annually. And we don't seem to have that message to half of the company. So a good a good summary, a good way for you as a compliance professional to benchmark your compliance program against a wide variety of others. And once again, it's third-party risk is still the highest risk. So we found that to be true for a long, long time. A long, long time. One of the things I thought that was interesting, Tom, that was a, a treasure trove of data. So definitely, if you're looking for benchmarking, take a look. But in the key insights section, only 5% of the respondents said, what is the biggest compliance issue facing your organization in the next 12 months? 5% for bribery and corruption, where cybersecurity and privacy combined at more than 53%. I think that this is a theme of our podcast today, right? That maybe we need to be looking at coding and privacy and cyber in a, in a much more focused way if you know bribery is going to be less prevalent. We'll have to see what happens here, but very, very interesting information, I think. Um, you were talking about ESG confusion, and I think that that leads pretty brilliantly into the very controversial, I think, article that the Wall Street Journal posted. And I think that that this is this is going to be an interesting question to see how how it goes forward. So, in their piece titled "Companies Quiet Diversity and Sustainability Talk Among Culture War Boycotts." The journal noted that mentions of green and social initiatives during earnings calls have fallen sharply in recent quarters after a high watermark in the past couple of years. So the author notes that this is likely in response to some of the right-leaning activists calling for boycotts of companies touting their DEI initiatives and U.S. states and shareholders arguing that ESG efforts aren't good uses of company time or resources. Obviously, we see things like what happened with Bud Light, Disney, Target, there's all Chick-fil-A even, ironically, and the other way. And the proof is in the numbers here. So mentions of ESG, DEI, and sustainability were down 31% on earnings calls from the same period last year. Um, on a more positive note, though, the article posits that companies aren't actually ceasing or defunding their ESG and DEI initiatives. Rather, they're just being quieter about them. And the author noted that many companies are still pushing forward, obviously, with their ESG initiatives because of pending SEC disclosures. And I think, obviously, because of the, the generation coming in, they want to know about what's going on with ESG companies. So what do you think, Tom? Do you think that this is a, sort of a response to, holy heck, I'm being buffeted on both sides, right and left, and maybe I should just keep my mouth shut? Do you think that this is, they've already talked about it enough and they don't want to keep going too much? What do you think is going on here? Well, I think your former or the first comment that maybe it's time to be a little less vocal has taken hold a little bit. Obviously, Disney in Florida is one example. Budweiser is another. As you said, Chick-fil-A and even where I live, Cracker Barrel, ah. who put out a rainbow rocker out front of the local Cracker yep. Barrel. Forbid. God forbid. <laughs> so uh, I don't think it's wrong to believe recognize that there are multiple groups within your stakeholder groups and multiple customer groups. And I think you can quietly do these things as effectively as you can by beating a drum. But companies have to 
honor who they are and have to honor who their employees are. And uh, I'm older than you are, and you're older than a lot of the people going into corporate world right now. And they may see things differently than you I see. And that has to be taken into account as well. So I don't pretend to say it's any easier, but I think you can do it strategically and, and perhaps learn from some of the lessons or missteps of others. Resiliency, right? Resiliency. And I don't, I mean, I don't see a pullback. I don't either. I, I don't think, I think I agree with you that the, the vocalization may be quieter and it may not even be quiet in the company. It just may be quiet looking outward, but I, I don't think I see a pullback on ESG or DEI either. I don't. So next comes, an article comes to us from our dear friend and colleague, Lisa Beth Lentini Walker. And if you don't know Lisa Beth, uh, you should. She is one of the true treasures in the compliance space. She is the CEO of Lumen Worldwide Endeavors, a firm specializing in compliance, governance, and ethics consulting. But I find her best work and frankly, most helpful is really around the area of mental health and specifically for compliance professionals. She has her feet firmly in both worlds. And she recently posted an article on Corporate Compliance Insights, CCI, entitled Managing Unwanted Unwanted Change and Make Us More Resilient in the Long Run. I don't think that notion is particularly new or maybe even noteworthy, but she gives what she has consistently done is talked about these issues in the compliance space literally when no one else was doing. And she talked about taking care of yourself. She talked about support groups. That's part of what Lumen does is provide this and here she puts down, I think, four things that may seem self-evident, but it's good to remind yourself as a compliance officer, you're going to have to deal with change. That's the nature of our game. So her four prescripts are radically accept the truth of inevitable change, maintain routines in other areas of your life that provide stability, strength, and tranquility, surround yourself with others who are supportive and uplifting, and savor and be present instead of dwelling and being absorbed on unwanted future or disappointments of the past. Now, some people may say, Christy, well, everybody knows those and you may well know them, but it never hurts to be reminded of them. And I just want to shout out to Lisa Beth. I've had the privilege to interview her a couple of times. I've seen her speak at numerous conferences. She always brings this message. And like I said, she was one of the first, uh, and she was one of the first with her feet firmly planted in both academic and professional disciplines, and she continues to talk about these issues in a way that many of us, many are not. And so if you ever need kind of any help, she's one of the most loving, giving, caring people I know, and I know she would love it if you'd reached out to her. But read this article, and if you're going through some tough times, just think about what she says, that keep your, your close friends close, rely on your support group. Yeah, you have committed to a life of change if you're in compliance. And um, don't worry about what you can't control. Control what you can't control. You know, Lisa Beth Lentini Walker was my first boss in compliance. I did not know that. She hired me into my first compliance role at Carlson oh. Wigley Travel when she was CCO. And I was now the director of compliance for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. So I owe her my career, essentially, and I'm always grateful to hear from her. But I really, I love this radically accept the truth of inevitable change, because I think we all kind of go day to day and it doesn't feel like change is absolutely inevitable, but actually can be helpful to say this is the status quo. Change is the status quo and we have to accept that. So 
We love you, Lisa Beth. And we're going to switch from that to something completely different. This, this transition was actually really difficult to write, so I'm not going to write it. And this is about our friend, Sam Bankman-Fried. We have not been talking about him the last couple of weeks. I've missed it. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, our friend, SBF, as he's known to his friends, the FCPA blog reported on him this week in a, an article titled DOJ Withdraws FCPA Count Against Sam Bankman-Fried, Citing Extradition Constraints. So for any of you who have not been following this saga, Sam Bankman-Fried is the founder and CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX and the associated trading firm Alameda Research, which went bankrupt earlier this year in a spectacular fashion. We have so many great details about that, like approving um, approving ex massive million-dollar expenses by emoji on Slack. He was originally indicted on eight counts, including conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud over his role in allegedly orchestrating the theft of billions of dollars of customer assets and the collapse of his cryptocurrency last year. So recently, he's been charged with violations of the, SP, uh, the FCPA for allegedly bribing Chinese officials to unfreeze crypto assets. Not supposed to do that. The DOJ chose to withdraw the FCPA count and four other charges because Bankman-Fried was originally extradited from the Bahamas to face the original eight charges, but they did not include the FCPA count. So the DOJ informed the U.S. judge that consent from the Bahamian government was likely required to bring these newly added charges. And since they had not given this blessing, at least not yet, they were going to withdraw those charges. Now, Tom, I was surprised because according to CNBC's legal analysis, the charges will probably just sit in limbo and be brought maybe next year after the original case is finalized. So do you think SBF's FCPA woes are over or do you think they're just starting? Uh, I think they are really just starting. I think he may have been right in his claim that wasn't part of the extradition agreement with the Bahamas and the DOJ is being very cautious here, but I fully expect a full FCPA case to be brought against him, even if it's just to pressure him to settle or resolve the underlying uh, matter he is currently up for with fraud or, or securities violations, et cetera. With the FCPA, he is looking at some very lengthy jail time for that, in addition to what he has now. So uh, I don't think it's going away. Interestingly, it alleged payments were made with cryptocurrency. So that adds a wrinkle that I think would be interesting to have litigated in court as well. But I don't think they're going away, Christy. I think a value may have shifted from 2022 <laughs> with cryptocurrency valuation than it would be today. But interesting. Keep keep your eye on SBF. He's uh, the gift that keeps on giving. So Chrissy, next I pointed to an article that uh, spoke about the arrest of the chief judge of the Ukraine Supreme Court for Corruption. But that's really just an opening to talk about something that I want to start talking about and hope you and others in our profession will start talking about. It. And it is the following. The reconstruction of Ukraine will be the construction project certainly the biggest of the first half of the 21st century, maybe the 21st century. It will rival the Marshall Plan in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, and the whole world will be watching. And they'll be watching to see if Ukraine can do this without 90% of the monies given by other countries, either as donations or forfeited by Russia, are somehow siphoned off. And so everyone needs to be invested in this because it is going to be so huge, and we are going to rebuild Ukraine. And 
We just have to make sure that corruption doesn't run rampant and riot there. And if the magma hat wearing Republican congressmen, they're going to jump on the corruption of the Ukraine's Ukrainians as a reason we can't help them rebuild. And so it's in their direct self-interest to do so, to create a government that's not based on bribery and corruption. I know it was appeared to be endemic under the prior regime because it was endemic, but that was before President Zelensky came in. And I hope he can clean it up because it's going to be huge. It's going to be trillions of dollars poured into that country at some point, probably in the next couple of years. And we are all invested in making sure that it doesn't flow out to oligarchs or others. So I really want to start the dialogue with as many compliance professionals as I can, because you may be at a major construction company, Bechtel, Halliburton, I don't care what the company, yes. Um, And you're thinking about these things already, but I want to challenge every compliance professional because you may be a part of this. The business opportunity is going to be so massive and so great that there are going to be products and services that don't wouldn't think of as leading or being a part of a rebuilding effort, particularly around infrastructure, may well be part of that. So um, I really use this article to sort of raise a clarion call. Compliance officers start thinking about this. It is a going to be a massive opportunity. So please take care and do what you can with your organization to make sure you're doing business with people that um, you can at least have oversight of because let's channel our inner Ronnie Reagan here, trust but verify. <laughs> I like the messages on politics there. That was good. I do <sighs> I do love the, the story. It's amazing, right? The Chief Justice, I, I know it's an aside to some, but it's such a great way in that the Chief Justice of the United of the uh, Ukrainian court had a, a million dollars in cash in his house and that he said it was being held for a friend, which is, you know, just never a good scene. But I do agree with you completely. And I think that... I think that the world is watching, and I think that the more Ukrainians can clean up their act, the more likely they'll be admitted to the EU, the more likely that they're going to have many, many good outcomes from that. So we need to be as supportive as we can from the companies that are going to be involved in that reconstruction. And if compliance officers want to work for those kind of companies that are doing great things, they might have an insight as to how that will work in my next article that I reviewed, which is called How Great Companies Give People What They Want. What a great title, right? It's from Inc. Magazine. And frankly, it feels a little bit like it was written in the heyday of Silicon Valley or the days of 2021, but it's not true. It was written now on the Inc. Magazine survey of the 2023 Best Workplaces list. And it goes into detail about how the companies that are on that list are giving employees the perks they want and paying attention to their needs to create a good working environment. And I really appreciated the thoughtfulness of some of the interviewees. So for instance, the CEO of Lumen Digital said that the company hires slow and fires slow. And amazingly, he actually feels a moral obligation to the individuals he hires. Talk about a really interesting point of view and a good one, I think. He says that they try not to wreck people's lives. So the article stresses that workplace productivity and lifestyle accommodation, those are the two things that are the twin turbos, according to them. 
tying together the 591 companies that made this list. Um, so flexibility and accommodating workers' needs were priorities. Um, and the most common paid perk for companies at the top of this list, I love this, was eight weeks or more of fully paid maternity leave with nearly 80% having that perk. And not surprisingly, mental health support and taking wellness days were close to the top of the list. My favorite one, Tom, was Fast Exit Fridays, which one of the companies had, meaning no meeting can be scheduled after 12 o'clock on Fridays so that people can get out and start their weekend and their life. I know I would appreciate that, and I probably will institute that here at Spark, although I don't think we need to institute it because nobody's scheduling meetings on Friday afternoon here, least of all me. What do you think? Do you think that it is hallucinatory and the current environment with people talking about recessionary winds and inflation and blah, 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 to actually give employees what they want? Or is it a smart plan because retention equals not having recruiting and replacement costs? Hmm. So I have a podcast at 5 p.m. Eastern every Friday <laughs> suggesting my boss needs to rethink his scheduling strategy. <laughs> Tom is his own boss, for those of you that don't know. <laughs> uh, so I'll... Made my name as a young lawyer being in the office on Friday afternoon. I love working Friday afternoons. It's a lot of work done. I just, the reason I enjoyed this article so much is anytime companies begin to get it, I think that's a positive step. And certainly the CEO from Lumen talking about hires and fires, the Airbnb, when they had to lay off a lot of people, uh, you know, they weren't laying off people till they had to or till they did. So I certainly understand that part. But accommodating workers' lives and the flexibility has become to mean so much in the workplace. And I read some article today that CEO claimed workers were 10 times more, more productive in the office. Well, I, you and I know that's not true. Mm -hmm. We both worked in offices, and, and I'm a lot more productive at home because I can just beaver away even at 5 p.m. on Friday. So uh, <laughs> anytime we can really accommodate what the lifestyles are now, I think it's a huge positive step forward. So uh, I think employers should be doing this. I was pleased to read this article that they are, and that's why compliance professionals such as ourselves really need to read a wide variety of literature beyond the compliance space. And if you don't have time, you have Christy and I. <laughs> Listen to the highlights, look at the show notes, click on these articles. I really do think that the what people don't understand from the dollars and cents perspective is that it creates loyalty. When people feel heard, they feel like this is important. If they get other offers, you know, they're looking at lifestyle too. And it can be really beneficial to retain talent, let me tell you. Amen. Amen. So I just enjoyed reading this. And if I, you know, except for working for a jerk. I have a great job situation here. So, uh, so we alluded to the next article earlier, and this came, comes to us, I think, from Dylan Tokar, but it was the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And in 2023, the Department of Justice is creating a corporate crime database. I think from your reaction for those listening at home, Christy's reaction was just as uh, mine was, you mean we didn't have one of these before? I just blew me away. But recognizing that even in 2023, maybe we can change for a little bit for the better. The DOJ is doing this. It's going to contain corporate crimes from April 23 going forward. They say they might uh, put in historical cases 
I frankly wouldn't hold my breath with that because if we can just get it going forward. But in addition to it allowing um, people, allowing the Department of Justice, allowing reporters, allowing the public to see this information, what it's going to lead to is I grew up in a very academic life. And part of the academic discipline of the people I work with and for was to review government databases of cases from, it was back then, it was Health and Human Resources or Health and Human Services, uh, Department of Labor, or you name the department. They would open up these sort of public databases and researchers and academicians could perform analysis to see trends, historical trends, and other information. So from that perspective alone, I thought it was significant, but I was really, I probably should have known that DOJ didn't have this, but I was stunned that they didn't. I'm glad they did. And hopefully they will keep it up going forward. Okay. Uh, Tom, <laughs> I started working at Gibson Dunn in the big law, you know, FCPA defense group in 2007. And you better believe that we had an Excel sheet of all of the corporate actions going back to the very, you know, 1978 or whenever the FCPA came in. And, you know, they, they should just call Gibson. I mean, we how many law firms have this kind of database and the government doesn't? I mean, this is this wasn't fancy. This was Excel, right? Uh, they have, a according to the article, they have 11 cases in there and God bless them for doing that much. But I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. But I mean, you're right. At least they're they're trying to start. But I don't I don't understand how they wouldn't have this, especially when they try to look at recidivism or try to calculate fines and things like asking your bosses if they remember. I mean, it's very peculiar, but I'm glad they're starting somewhere, right? So Christy, I think we may actually have to dedicate segment each week to Florida <laughs> man. So first of all, could you tell us what Florida Man is and why Florida Man seems to get into such unique circumstances? Yeah. So, you know, Tom, I absolutely have to uh, close our podcast with something that I find entertaining, or as the British would call it, daft. So those of you who are listening in the United States are probably familiar with the trope of Florida Man. It tends to describe someone from Florida typically male, doing something silly, crazy, or stupid. And this is one of those times. So this actually comes from a news report in Florida. Last month, a man was dubbed by that sheriff's office as the, quote, dumb criminal of the week. Apparently, Florida fans dumb every week, different ones. After he was caught trying to assemble the electric scooter he stole in front of the shop that he stole it from. So the man was witnessed walking past cashiers and out the door of Target in with $540 of merchandise, specifically this scooter. He then proceeded to start to put it together right outside the entrance and a responding deputy used his police car to transport the thief rather than waiting for the Florida man to finish putting his scooter together. There we are, Tom. <laughs> so Florida man does it again. I can't wait to see what we come up with next time. I know it's uh, true. I'm Tom Fox. I'm Christy Granhart. Thanks for joining us. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.